You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope, and I'm sat here in lockdown Victoria. Yes, covid 19 has struck once more and my state of Australia is in lockdown it would seem it's the so-called Indian variety so we're just taking a little bit of break from normal life once again Um, lots of factors involved in that I won't dig into those now but uh, it's a little bit frustrating but and my heart goes out to those who really do suffer um, missing out on work particularly owners of small businesses, etc. For myself, I can work from home rather easily and indeed record this podcast. So this episode is entitled Beyond Conflict, Christianity, Science, Climate and COVID. So you could be forgiven for thinking that Christianity and the sciences are at war, even though this is ultimately an old, a tired and an outdated view. It's not really an issue at the level of ideas as such, but fundamentalist Christians, the new atheists, and now the QAnon-style conspiracy theorists make it appear so. We have long seen and suffered the creation versus evolution debate. It generally has generated more heat than light. It seems to me that it was the first battle in the imagined war, or at least the war declared by fundamentalists of all stripes, And so there's ultimately no getting away from it, no matter how tired some of us are with it. Now, I've spoken quite a bit in this podcast about the true purpose behind the meaning of Genesis 1-2, and we'll touch on that a little bit again later in this program. In recent years, of course, we've seen Christian resistance to climate change science, and in the past year or so, Christian conspiracy theorists have called the COVID-19 pandemic a hoax. There is no shortage of ill-considered denial. In the case of both climate change and COVID, such denial is very destructive. On the other side of the equation, there are scientists who have not done us any favours. Going back a number of years now, Jacques Monod once wrote that, quote, The universe is not pregnant with life, nor the biosphere with man, sick. Man at last knows that he is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe, out of which he emerged only by chance, his destiny is nowhere spelled out, nor his duty. The kingdom above or the darkness below, it is for him to choose. Now, one of the problems with this quote is that as a scientific statement, it may just be dead wrong. And I've spoken a little bit in past programs about the issue of extraterrestrial life. Christians have in fact been considering this idea for centuries. Some scientists think that the universe is abundant with life. We just don't know yet. As a scientific statement, 
it's quite dumb. Of course, it's quite dated, but it's still quite dumb. On a more metaphysical level, Carl Sagan once said that the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. But again, how could he know? Scientists often overreach themselves when discussing meaning. Stephen Hawking may have known a thing or two about black holes, but when he said that there is no room for philosophy anymore, he was ironically making a philosophical statement. Of course, it gets worse. The irascible Richard Dawkins, uh, who says that, quote, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world, is entirely misguided. The problem with this statement is that it, of course, is not always untrue of Christians, and to be honest, though, it's often not untrue of most people. But as a Christian myself, a wannabe theologian, soon to finish my master's, and scientist, it's not a statement I own at all. I want to understand this world and always have since being a child. And believing in God adds another dimension to that, serving God and knowing the mind of God by knowing the world around me. Now, Christians can find themselves in quandaries of their own making, denying evolution, yet happily having the latest flu shot, because last year's will not do. Consulting the weather forecast, yet denying climate change. We can be very picky in what we believe, and Christians, as much as anyone else, buy into the lie that faith and scientific ideas, as opposed to some technologies or worldviews that are smuggled into science, are in conflict. And so this episode is a short rejoinder allowed no to this conflict idea. Now, St. Augustine said that theology was faith-seeking understanding. This tells us that for the Christian, faith must come first. Now, this understanding is not um, then that it's not, um, you know, one side, not a nice option. Uh, it's not something to be actively ignored. Our faith seeks to understand. Faith comes first, but faith is not, uh, it's a hackneyed expression. It's not blind faith. It isn't um, entirely irrational, although it depends what you mean by rationality. Does that not? But what I mean is that Faith provides you with an orientation. But what is that orientation? Well, this means that faith asks questions. That faith can actually doubt. Doubt in my mind is not the opposite of faith. Um, indifference is. I don't know who said that first. It's a quote I've heard before. But faith is not the destination, but it's the path. It's the way forward. It's not the answer, but it's the way of asking questions. So it's, faith is not uh, the badge of the fundamentalists alone. It's not the showstopper. It's not the, um, what's that old cliche? Um, uh, he said it, I believe it, that confirms it, or something along those lines. A very simplistic kind of, if you can put something on a bumper sticker, you might be, um, you might be expressing it in a concise manner. You might understand it, or you might not. You might be, uh, hiding complexity with simplicity. Now, faith, for some Christians, is, and this questioning that, I, that I've talked about that it leads to, can be limited to the world of the text. It's a matter of exegesis, you know, reading the Bible, and thinking about, well, how does that apply to me and the various things that, that concern us? Um, I can remember, 
I don't know why this comes to mind, but being in a Bible study and people thinking about the passage and how it might apply to their choosing of a nanny for their children, which I'm sure for some people is an important thing. For me, it was a bit... I don't mean to be classist there, but anyway, you get what I'm driving at, right? That that faith isn't limited to the pieties of the church or the simple concerns of life, although, of course, it, it applies to all those things. It must do. But when I was about 19 or 20, it dawned on me that if, and, and it's not a profound thought, but for me it was a profound thought at the time, that if God was the creator of all things, and that after all is the statement in Genesis 1, more or less, um, I'm thinking about darkness in, in that context, but it's certainly it's the assumption behind mature theism. And it talks about creation from nothing. Uh, if we're getting into it since I've started, that's not precisely what's assumed in the text of Genesis 1, but it certainly ultimately doesn't deny it. That's a confusion of ancient ontologies with modern ones, as I've talked about in other programs, the idea that for the ancients it was, the, are things ordered? Do they function? What are the relationships rather than the, the mechanical aspects of how something comes into being? Of a modern scientific or engineering uh, driven view. But in 1920, it dawned on me that if God was the creator of all things, then all things were the proper study for the Christian. And I should note in passing, I'm kind of leaving my script somewhat here, is I knew Christians at uni who failed their courses because they spent more time in Christian ministry. And maybe that was their calling to, to, to engage in Christian ministry to the exclusion of quote-unquote secular study but it wasn't the choice for me uh, and not at least not at the early stages and I flirted with ordained ministry thinking about it at one point but maybe if they viewed looked at things through this lens and considered their study more seriously and God as creator and not just redeemer and not just redeemer of the soul then they might have thought more broadly. So for me, it was my beloved sign, something that I'd grown up loving and being passionate about and knowing that that was my career and my future, and it has been. But now viewed through a lens of this is not just a world of of wonder in, in the sense of being filled with amazing things and, and trying to put that together with a scientific narrative, but a world of wonder and delight that's something that was created and is meant to have meaning and purpose as hard as they can be to divine at some some points so theology was is faith seeking understanding and that that flows over into our practice of science but so how do scientists view science if we're thinking about this moving beyond conflict understand them from this point of view that of course is a, a huge literature uh, some very brief quotes here Carl Sagan said that it was quote, a way of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge, end quote. So, and, and this, I guess, to thinking as an educator, this is somewhat problematic, is the things that you want people to know about science. And if they're going to go on in science, and there's some fundamental things to, to know, facts and some theories and things they can write down. But a, a true scientist, ultimately, whether or not they're a professional scientist, an amateur scientist, or a kid crawling around in the dirt in their backyard, uh, 
is, is a way of thinking, a methodology or a set of methodologies. Not necessarily a worldview, is worth pointing out at this point. Likewise, author and physicist Isaac Asimov uh, said that, quote, science does not purvey absolute truth. Science is a mechanism. It's a way of trying to improve your knowledge of nature. It's a system for testing your thoughts against the universe and seeing whether they match, end quote. So, so there you've got not a platonic idea of, of science coming into contact with eternal truths, which is um, some people's view, and certainly religious people would, would take that idea about religious practice and faith, but an idea of testing. Testing your thoughts against the universe and seeing whether or not they match. Do we do that with faith? Do we test our faith against the universe? Surely we do. Faith is meant to make sense of the world around us. If it is true, it will make more sense than atheism. Uh, and I want to say that the false contrast is saying that, oh, it makes more sense than science. That's to misunderstand science if you buy into what Sagan says and what Asimov says. So to pick up on this idea of testing it, C.S. Lewis said, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So it's this sense that faith is meant to be not an internalized, private, privatized thing, a quantity, um, but Christianity or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I know, you know, for some, that term is problematic these days, but for the deposit of faith, the the tradition uh, that's the Bible and, and the way in which it's been read, which sometimes needs to be challenged, of course, it's meant to it's meant to make sense of the rest of the world. It's meant to lighten or enlighten those things. And of course, that means if you then take this kind of theory type model of, of Christian doctrine, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, I think, is that if your understanding doesn't bring the maximum illumination, well, then maybe you need to change your understanding. Maybe it's too much driven by your own perspective or experiences and uh, you need to read more widely or think more widely. Now, science would claim that it is the best of doubt and a freedom of thought. Now, the very famous Richard Feynman said that physics, quote, teaches the value of rational thought as well as the importance of freedom of thought. The positive results that come from doubting that the lessons are all true. Now, the counterclaim, of course, would be that religion involves faith and controlled thought. Now, is that true? Is it really the sense, and here's one of those battle metaphors again, that science considers evidence and faith ignores it? That science believes things because of what it can see, and religious faith believes things in spite of what they can see. That, of course, is the caricature, and that's something that I want to deal with uh, in the second half of the program.
Well, welcome back. We're dealing with the myth of the conflict between uh, Christianity and the sciences. So let me say a few things by way of rebuttal of the idea that faith um, ignores evidence. The first is that there can be a two-way interaction between the sciences and Christianity. Christianity historically provided the impetus for scientific exploration. As Paul Davies observes, quote, in Renaissance Europe, the justification for what we today call the scientific approach to inquiry was the belief in a rational God whose created order could be discerned from a careful study of nature. End quote. And so, you know, that's common to the, the main monotheistic faiths of Islam, Christianity and Judaism. Likewise, when the Big Bang was suggested as a theory to explain the origins of the universe, physicist Fred Hoyle proposed an alternative theory without the need for um, this theory for the Big Bang because the Big Bang smacked a religion to him. So philosophical presuppositions do influence the practice of science at times. But before you say, uh, say it, reproduci reproducibility of results shows us, for example, that the planet really is warming. Evolution does appear to make sense of many different facts in paleontology, biology, anatomy, and immunology, we might add, uh, in the current COVID crisis. Bad ideas get tested and get thrown out. Can the reverse be true then? Can science cause us to rethink some of our theology? One would think science has little to say about the resurrection beyond a simple, we never see that happen. Theologically, that's the point too. It was a sign from God, precisely because it doesn't happen on its own. Note carefully, I'm not suggesting that science will challenge what is in the Bible per se, but our theological systems, our readings of the Bible is another story. By this, I mean, for example, science cannot possibly challenge the idea that humans are made for a purpose. All it can do is describe how human beings appeared on the earth, on the African savannah millions of years ago. The point of Genesis 1, as John Walton suggests in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, is to describe what the earth is, a temple for God to dwell in, and that humans are for the purpose of bearing the divine image. Now, science may challenge a literal six-day view of the earth coming into being, but it cannot not, vis-a-vis -vis science, challenge the Bible's view of purpose. Now, science will say that it is, doesn't admit teleology, that is, purpose, but that's an assumption. Uh, you might argue that it's something of an observation, an extrapolation, but it really, in the end of the day, is just an assumption, simply because you can produce systems that appear uh, purposeful but apparently aren't, does not deny the idea of overall or overarching purpose. That's a grand statement, I realise, but I, I think that that's the case. You need multiple levels of discussion or description. Perhaps this two-way flow is made easier by recognising that the sciences and theology use similar tools. I think I've said this before, uh, and some uh, more similar than scientists are willing to admit. Now, Richard Dawkins um, is well known to espouse a philosophy known as positivism. And this means that our knowledge of the natural world is some kind of naive realism, which suggests that we can know the truth about the world objectively and directly via our senses. And this is known as empiricism. This is the naive part. 
it's the idea that if it can be tested, then it must be true. Um, if it can't be tested, then it's not true. Hence, aesthetics is just about taste and religion. religions are about nothing because they contain no reality because you can't directly observe spiritual things, which in itself isn't true. It depends how you define them. Only what is quote-unquote real can be known to us and we know it directly, naively, through our senses. Now, of course, many Christians buy into this without thinking. They acknowledge that science gives us hard facts and unconsciously buy that this is the only valid form of truth. Now, this leads to an insistence that, say, Genesis 1-2 must be read as the same sort of truth and hence um, as science and therefore must deny the truth of science. So that's creationism. Or try and force the narrative into some kind of scientific framework, and that's known as concordism. So you bend over backwards to say, well, the you know light is created uh, on the first day. Note that darkness already existed. And so you get light and day, but there are no sun, moon and stars because the atmosphere was opaque at this time. And then on day four, things cleared up. Or yes, there used to be a firmament, uh, a solid surface that separated the waters above from the waters below, but that broke. That's no longer there. <sighs> so you you do things to a text, trying to force it into a particular shape rather than saying, for example, well, light and darkness are created first because the, the purpose of Genesis 1 as we find it is to establish the Sabbath and therefore to mark out days, you need light and darkness, which are called night and day. So it's, it's a lost cause in, in that sense. So better to understand the text as an ancient piece of cosmology or cosmogony and understand the text from that point of view and not from our own position with our scientific questions. A good dose of John Walton will help here, I think, because he looks at the text with an understanding of the worldview of the ancient readers, as much as, of course, moderns can approach that, and the kinds of questions and concerns that they brought to the text. And then those who understand where Genesis 1 might fall into Israel's self-understanding, and then indeed Genesis 2 through 3, that kind of helps you read the text in a more nuanced, enlightened fashion, and not ask the wrong sorts of questions about, did Adam have a belly button? Science often relies upon the concept of reductionism. Reductionism says that the things we see are, quote, nothing but. Consciousness is nothing but the states of the brain. The states of the brain is nothing but biology, which is nothing but chemistry, which boils down to physics. We are just atoms in motion. Theology tells us that there is more to describing the world than reductionism, and for the most part, science operates as if this were true. There are levels of explanation which add useful information. So, for example, the brain might be simply an example of physics, but you consult a doctor for persistent headaches and a counsellor for your mental health issues, and both these things have value at work. Physics tells you how a kettle boils, but only I can tell you that the kettle is boiling because I want a cup of coffee. Either side of the debate, insisting that there is only one way of seeing the world is manifestly untrue, there are levels of understanding. If science were willing to stop making theological pronouncements, such as there is no role for a creator because physics explains anything, or everything rather, 
then theology and science could live more comfortably side by side. As an aside, simply because we have the laws of physics that describe how the Big Bang may have occurred does not remove the need for a creator. Laws describe what we see. They have no agency of their own. So, for example, we could say that there is an ever-increasing level of complexity of description from physics to consciousness, and each level tells us something new. Metaphysical questions can be left open as sitting at the top of this hierarchy of description. We can genuinely ask, then, whether or not theism or atheism completes the picture. And humility is required from both sides, for even our faith is incomplete now. And that's 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12. What does this humility look like? Well, I've suggested it looks like critical realism. While naive realism says we look straight at the truth via our senses, critical realism says that my science or your theology comes through a lens, a worldview. When all have a position, uh, we, so we all have position we view things from, affected by age, gender, race, education, etc., now, this is not to say that all human thinking becomes a phenom phenomenologism. For, have I got that word right? Uh, becomes phenomena. Oh, it's too late for me to try the word. You get the idea that it's simply about phenomena, where all I really know is my sense data. What it means is that all things need to be tested and modified against the world around us. My initial observation leads to my scientific or theological theories being tested and challenged by critical reflection. My ideas can survive and lead me to understanding reality more, just not exhaustively. Let's 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 be um, let's be humble here and and realize that there, a theory of everything, quote unquote, won't give us the full mind of God, and there will be no one systematic theological system that which will be complete. So one area of theology, or where this is true, I think, is Trinitarian theology. So Trinity Sunday has just been and gone. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will find a number of statements for which it makes sense. The Trinity makes uh, sense, I think, and helps us to understand the cross, the atonement. And I've spoken of in another episode, it helps us to understand how a transcendent God interacts with the creation in an imminent and intimate uh, fashion or manner. If the Trinity makes more sense of issues like evolution and suffering, then it is a useful theological theory, and I think I like the word theory more than doctrine. I should say in passing that I once read a, a quote-unquote progressive blog that denied one aspect of the Trinity, that is the Incarnation. They may well follow Rabbi Jesus, but they should reflect, re respectfully reconsider the label Christian for themselves. Of course, critical realism applied to climate change or COVID is what has produced such great science. Rather than assume some ill-informed conspiracy theory, Understanding that the climate system is open to perturbation or that viruses can jump across species leads to real advances um, and real results. We have multiple vaccines produced in record time. If only such urgency were applied to transitioning from fossil fuels to renewable energy, given that climate change could kill billions if we go down the path to hothouse Earth. Uh, and tragically, of course, COVID's ki killed about something like 3 million that we know of today. What does all of this mean for the so-called war between science and the Christian faith, particularly in this time of climate change and COVID? It means we need to keep coming back to the world around us and test our ideas. It means becoming more familiar with the world around us, the world of the Bible and its human authors. 
it means stop assuming we know everything. Even when the new atheists do not show such humility, the sons and daughters of the Father must. None of this is to say that we abandon our faith, of course, when it comes to the, the so-called combat. Our only fundamentalism is so brittle. But agile minds will seek to know what they can and not be trapped in ways of thinking simply because it is comfortable to do so or um, it's tradition. Now, I've read that tradition is um, um, bondage to dead people or something of that order. I think that's unfair to tradition, but nonetheless, tradition uh, is not absolute. Change is hard, of course, and God is bigger than change. We know that scripture, from Scripture that God's thoughts are beyond our thoughts, that's Isaiah 55.8, and that we only sim, see uh, dimly through a mirror. That, again, is 1 Corinthians 13. So our faith should not be rigid. It just needs uh, to be enough to help us take that next step into the unknowns of life and of understanding, be that of you know, pure matters of faith to fall back into more traditional language, or if it's matters of huge ethical import, like whether or not I get a vaccine, or whether or not I protest on climate change, or I change my diet, or do whatever else. So, uh, as I've often emphasized, there's an empirical, uh, an ethical imperative to dealing with this this combat myth between science and faith. Of course, it comes down to love and neighbor love, as of a spouse in a book, uh, A Climate of Justice, Loving a Neighbor in a Warming World, plug, plug. Um, to truly love our neighbor implies two things in our present context of, of climate change and COVID. It first means being able to listen to each other in the debate. And that, that can be difficult because conspiracy theory is just really mind-bendingly... Yeah. What do you do with some of that? So you need, we need to listen, but it doesn't mean giving ground over truth. Commitment to pursuing truth is important. There's a time to talk and a time to leave well enough alone. There's a time to understand why people believe what they do and to try and educate, that is to debunk the war, uh, the war narrative that they construct. But there's also time to simply move on because the second imperative is not only to speak truth, but to act in light of it. And that's getting on with the real fight, if you don't mind the language. And I know there are some Christians who don't like casting things in terms of combat or war on this or fight etc but there is a genuine struggle here against chaos that seeks to undo the good order of the world and and as i've said a number of times in various programs that's the imagery in genesis 1 god ordering the chaos uh, limiting it corralling it uh, to bring forth order so after all of that i do want to say that there is actually conflict but it's not a conflict or should not be a conflict between Christianity and sciences, be it immunology or climate change science, or evolutionary science, or whatever science you can name, but it's it's a combat of love versus chaos. So it's time to get on the side of love uh, and in faith embrace knowledge and with our love uh, combat the chaos that threatens to enfold uh, the world through things like COVID and climate change. So thank you for listening once more, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.